Good morning. Uh, if y'all don't know me, my name is Zane Parsley. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Dallas Bible Church. Happy to fill in the pulpit on Aaron's preaching team as he and Kat celebrated some time away this past week. And boy, he gave me a great passage, didn't he? Romans 8. Holy cow. Thanks, man. I thought he was going to kick me down to Romans 9. This is awesome. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in them today. And I want to talk a little bit about my experience with this passage. I was, um, I was raised in church. Man, I was a church rat. I knew Jesus Christ from a young age. I was about six years old when I gave my life to him. Uh, it was uh, spring of 1997 that I was baptized in the big baptistry at Highland Baptist Church, a large southern Baptist church in Huntington, West Virginia. The water came up to like my nose, so I had to tilt my head back like that and, and doggy style out of there when I was done. I mean, I was, I was in it from when I was a little kid. I wasn't, I wouldn't say a particularly fearful kid, but uh, when the lights went off, at nighttime, there was maybe a different story there, and I found myself afraid of the things that most children are afraid of, the normal stuff, like monsters and ghouls and Chuck E. Cheese animatronics, and uh, as I would go to sleep at night, all them things would march out of the closet and, and march around the room, and I would get scared, and I'd call my parents, and they'd turn the lights on, and they'd talk me down, and you know, when you're six or seven... You know, you, you know that's an irrational fear, even, even as a child, that there's going to be an animatronic in your room or a ghost or whatever. And so when your parents talk to you about that, they can kind of talk you down from your fears. But there was one fear as a child that I had that was persistent. When the lights came on and my parents came in the room, it didn't always help uh, for them to comfort me. And it was a fear that is persistent even today. Does God love me? Does God love me? You see, I may have been baptized when I was six, but it didn't, it didn't change the fact that I was still very fearful about, does the God of heaven, the God that commands our righteousness and our obedience, does he love me? Like, really, like, I know he loves me. Jesus loved me, loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The first thing that I learned, but the hardest thing for me to believe. Does he love me? And so I can remember as a child, you know, I'd lay there and I'd think, man, I thought, I, thought, I thought today that God would probably not like. Maybe he stopped loving me. Maybe I'm no longer saved. And I would get upset and I'd call my mom and dad. Or I'd sit there and I'd think, man, I did something today that God would not approve of. How could a Christian act that way? I can't be saved. Jesus surely doesn't love me. And I would call my mom and dad and they'd talk to me about it. And, and year after year passed. And I got to the point where I was around 10 years old. Are there any 10-year-olds in here? Ethan, how old are you? Nine, pretty close. I was around Ethan's age. And, uh, and I can remember, I called my parents and I said, you know, I'm just worried that Jesus doesn't love me. And they said, uh, well, we've talked about this before. And I said, I know. And my dad said, well, here, take this Bible and I want you to read Romans chapter 8. So I'm Ethan's age. I just learned to read like two years ago. And my dad says, read Romans chapter 8. And even as a kid, I remember reading this and understanding like maybe 5% of it. But when I got to the end, this bit about being more than conquerors, this part about nothing being able to separate us from Christ's love, I can remember feeling comforted. And so you can see, this is not even the normal Bible that I use for my Bible study, but this page is wrinkled and it's worn out. And it's, and it's been outside in the rain with me, and it's, it's probably felt some of my tears over the years, because this is the passage I turn to when I need to know that, yes, Jesus does love me. 
And so I'm excited to get into this passage with y'all today and teach you three principles that I've learned to live by out of Romans chapter 8 to remind me Jesus does love me and God's love commits to me. So as we've been going through Romans, I just want to do a quick overview. We started in chapter 1 several months ago. Romans is an interesting book in that unlike a lot of Paul's other epistles, it doesn't address just one issue. It kind of it runs the gamut. It's hard for, for scholars to look in Romans and say, it's about this. Because Paul covers so many different things. He starts in chapter 1 and he says, we are lost. And in chapter 2 he says, we're all lost, even those of us that have the law. In chapter 3 he tells us about how we find righteousness through Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 and 5, how the ancient Israelites found that righteousness and how we have victory in that. In 6, we're slaves to that righteousness. God's redeemed us so we can be obedient. And in chapter 7 he throws a curveball and he says, you're still going to be disobedient, but God is gracious in that. And in chapter 8 he tells us about what God is bringing into the future. And then at the end of chapter 8, he writes all these things down. And I like to imagine he's got the scroll in front of him and the ink's still drying and he's kind of looking up through it and saying, okay, I covered this, I covered that. And he's reading back through it and he says in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? Which I believe is referencing the entirety of the book. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think he really scratches his head before he writes that because it really is, it's a question. What do we say in response to the gospel? What is left? And I think he envisions the Romans as they're reading this and as it's been read in their midst thinking, okay, okay, I get it, Paul. This is the gospel. This is the good world that God is bringing. But it doesn't feel that way in my life. It doesn't always feel that way. I don't always feel like God loves me. So what do we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Because he goes on to say in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, man, I can't even wrap my mind around that, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So uh, I just got to point out to y'all, God has really shaken my identity and who, and who I believe I am and who I believe I am as a loved child of God and becoming a father. Uh, there's, there's a lie that I've often believed uh, as a follower of Jesus about this, does God love me really? And that lie is this, and if you're keeping notes, we're going to go over three of them today. First lie is that if God loved me, my life would be better. So Paul paints this picture. If God loved me, my life would be better. Paul paints this picture in the book of Romans of this God who is infinitely powerful, can do anything he stinking wants, right? We believe God is supreme over all things. And if that's true, and if he loves me, and if he loves you, and if he loves the church at Rome, then why are our lives not better? Especially when we look at our lives and we see things that are broken that we feel like are, are, are things that could easily be fixed. Like, why are my relationships not perfect? Why, why do I struggle to love my wife? Why do I struggle with the same sins over and over and over again, though I pray that God liberate me? Isn't that something he would give me? If you really love me and you're powerful, then why are our lives not better? And even as a child, I remember struggling with that. Well, God loves me, but like, my friends at school don't. Why didn't he change that? 
And, and, and again, becoming a father has, has, has turned this, this world upside down on its head. And, and Paul brings that out. He says, he who does not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, like if Jesus wasn't enough, give us all thanks? How will he not give us all things if he's given us his son? So my son is 15 months old. His name's Lazarus. Um, and he was here during the first service and he had to get carted out into the, um, into the coffee bar because he was making it miserable for everyone. But my son Lazarus is 15 months old and I love him so much. I mean, I just delight in him. You know, I became a father for the first time uh, about a year ago with Lazarus and it has just changed my world. Now, if I gave you Lazarus, this boy that I delight in, that I would do anything for, if I gave him to you to live a life of derision and temptation and pain and hardship and persecution and crucifixion for you guys, y'all better believe my car keys are yours too, right? Like if I love you that much, my, my routing number for my bank account, it's yours. You take it. You take my pen. You take my emotional energy. You take my car. You take it all because you got my best. You got my son. Does God love me? He gave me his son. So then why is my life like this? Well, what Paul says is if he gives you his son, he's going to give you all things. And, and I don't think that that's just a spiritual all. I believe that when the Bible says all, it means all. He will give us all things. And that means all good things for us, right? Because God commits to our good. So if you're keeping notes, we're going to go over three principles. The first is this. God's love commits to our good. God is not withholding from us. He's committing to our good. He's going to give us all things. That lie that we believe that God is holding back from us, that is a lie as old as time itself. That is a lie that begins with a hiss. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we hear about a man and a woman named Adam and Eve who lived in a, a, a pretty close to perfect world except for the talking snake uh, where they were allowed to just walk around, eat fruit and vegetables and, and they had a job to do and it was a pretty easy job. And what a great life, right? That's all you got to do is eat, eat fruit and do your job. Uh, and, but even in that world, there was a lie that came up to Eve. And she's walking around the garden one day and a serpent comes to her and says, Eve, did God tell you you couldn't eat from the fruit in the garden? And he said, well, it was just this one tree. It's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says this to Eve. Hmm. God told you not to eat of that tree because he's holding back. He doesn't want your eyes to be opened and you become like him. And Eve stewed on that and she thought, you're right. Yeah, you're right. God's holding back from me. And she took of the tree and the world changed forever. So when we hear that lie that God is holding back from us, remember, that is an old lie. It's not a new one and it comes with a hiss. Because God's love commits for our good. Again, when Paul says he's giving us all things, it doesn't feel like it necessarily at the time. So when he says all things, I think those things must fit into either two categories. If we look at our life and we see things that we don't have that we want, and we look at an almighty God and we say, God, if you loved us, you would give us this. You would give us righteousness. You'd give us good relationships. You'd give us that mortgage that we want. You'd take care of us. When we see those things, all things, they fit into one of two categories. Either those things are not good for us. Either those things would destroy us, like the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. 
They would destroy us. They would remove us. Or number two, they're not good for us now. Pastor Aaron preached a message a couple weeks ago about the world God is bringing into place through the gospel. And Romans chapter 8 talks about how um, all creation is groaning for redemption. And that we as the church are also groaning for our redemption as sons and daughters of God. And we see a world coming into place where all things will be yours. And the reason I know that is because God has given us his son. He's going to give us all things. So again, that first lie, if God loved me, my life would be better. God says, no, 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 no. My love commits, and my love commits to your good. God has our good in mind with his love. And and I want to go through a second lie, because it feeds right out of this in the book of Romans. And the first one is, if God loved me, my life would be better. The second one is this, if I was better... And this is, this is my lie. If I was better, God would love me. So this is something that um, is particularly tricky for those of us who are raised in church or in Texas in general, in the Bible Belt culture, because religious people tend to interpret their worth before God based on the deeds that they do. The good, the bad, the ugly. This is how God looks at me and he loves me. If I was better... God would love me. And that was the lie again that I was believing as a child that, oh, I did something wrong today. God must not love me. It's the same lie that I want to believe even now that I can do good and good and good and good and then I do bad and suddenly I've lost the love of God. But this lie is just not true. It's easy to see how we would believe it because this is something that we reinforce to ourselves and to our children at a young age. Um, we give people feedback and love based on the things that they do. So it starts when you're real little. You pooped in the potty. Oh, wow, big man, I'm so proud of you. You did it. You pooped in the potty. Good job. (laughs) Thanks, Gary. You did it. And we do that so that, again, whenever a child has to They do it in the potty, right? And when you're a kid, you learn that. Hey, man, I'm making my dad proud. I'm doing the right thing. This is how I earn love. And it it continues as you get older. You hit a home run out there today. Boy, howdy. You're a slugger. That's my son. Boy, I'm proud of him. Get out there and do it again. And so, yeah, I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to earn the love of my coach and my friends and the people around me. You got into Stanford. First, you pooped in the potty, then you got into Stanford. Boy, you are smart. All in one week. Howdy. You got into Stanford. I'm so proud of you. You are so smart. And so we begin to imprint our identity and find our identity in the things that we do because we get love from others in the things that we do. And then we take that same understanding to God. It works that way with people. Why would it not work that way with God? God, I have done such a good job this week. I've read my Bible four times this week. Are you proud? I served in the three-year-old classroom. No one wants to be in there. Are you proud? (laughs) That's not how God works. God loves like a father. He loves us. He loves the things that we do because he loves us. This brings us to our second point. First, God loves us for our good. His love commits for our good. And secondly, God's love commits for us to be good. Now, let me deconstruct that. I don't want you to hear that the wrong way. God doesn't love us because we're good. He wants us to be good and obedient because he loves us. Obedience is its own reward, right? So according to the Bible, 
Uh, We do things that please God. Yes, they bring him joy, but not because of the things unto themselves. They, They please God because he is pleased with us through Jesus. So look at this passage, if you would, uh, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? That's, again, a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can do that. Uh, it is Christ Jesus who died more than that. He was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christian, you belong to Jesus. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are his End of sentence. He loves you because you are in him. You are in him in his death. You are in him in his resurrection. And he loves you. And what Paul does here is so sacred. He pulls back the curtain and he shows us the throne. He shows us what's going on in God's throne room. So where we are right here is holy ground. This is the kind of passage that you take off your shoes to read because he shows us what's happening when Jesus lives an earthly life, dies an earthly death, and is resurrected in an earthly way. His physical body sits down on the right hand of God and currently as we speak is interceding on our behalf. Now don't don't take that spiritually, right? Don't take that metaphorically. That is true. When Larry really screws up, God sitting on his throne, Jesus turns to the Father and says, you see Larry? Yeah, Larry really screwed up, didn't he? I love Larry. Father, will you forgive him? Will you step in and change the circumstances of his life so he doesn't need to do that again? Holy Spirit, will you go down and comfort Larry right now? I want to intercede on his behalf. You saw where I was faithful in life. I'm making Larry faithful too. I'm interceding on his behalf. Father, will you go for him? Will you step in for him? Because God has your holiness in mind when he loves you. God's love commits for you to be good. He wants you to be good because he loves you. You know, we, we, we flip this thing on its head so much in our lives. Um, again, having a son has really changed the way I think about God. My son does lots of things I'm proud of. He's only 15 months old, but he says lots of words. He says, Dada, and Mama, and Night Night, and uh, he says, Goodbye, or Bye Bye. Uh, he says, Brup, which is him saying burp when I burp. He goes, Brup, and real deadpan-like, he like looks at me like I'm going to laugh, and I do because he's funny, and I'm proud of him. He's a funny kid. He makes me happy. I love him very much, but everyone in this room could do all those things. I don't love you all like I love Laz. I'm just going to say, I don't. You could all do those things. I don't love him because he does things that make me proud. Like when he says brup, that's funny, but he's no Woody Allen. Like, like, I love that he does those things because I love him. That's how our good works are before the Heavenly Father. He doesn't love that Larry is faithful because he loves Larry's faithfulness. He loves Larry right? We get so fixated on our good works that they are proving ourselves before God, that we forget that God loves us. That's how intercession works. The good works are the icing on the cake. Man, Laz is cute. He gives his mom and dad kisses and hugs. That's great. I love that. That's the icing on the cake. I don't love the icing more than the cake, (laughs) right? God loves you. God's love commits for you to be good, So when we think of that lie, if I was better, God would love me. Put that out the door. 
God wants you to be better. He wants you to be righteous because he loves you. It is your righteousness that's motivated by God's love, not the other way around. Put that lie out the door. God's love commits to our good. I want to go to a third lie because this is, I think, probably what the church in Rome was thinking, and it's often what I'm thinking when I cover this passage, and that's, that's this. You know, God, yes, God loves me. I get it. Okay, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think that's true. But I think it was true more in the past than it is now. So maybe God really loved me at VBS, or maybe he really loved me in youth group, or maybe he really loved me when I was on that mission trip, but a lot's happened since then. A lot has happened since the spring of 1997 when I was baptized in my 30th birthday. I've done a lot of things before then, and so I look back on my life and I think, man, God, I know you love me, but I don't think you love me like you used to. Which brings up our third lie, and Christians avoid this. God used to love me. So line number one, if you're keeping notes, uh, if God loved me, my life would be better. Line number two, if you're keeping notes, uh, if I was better, God would love me. And line number three, God used to love me. God used to love me. And to that, Paul is going to speak directly to the church in Rome. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to do it? Again, a rhetorical question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. And this, this question hits some of us really uh, in the places that hurt us the most. Because if you've lived any amount of life, you know that some people and some loves are separable. For anyone among us who has heard the words, your father and I are not going to be able to work it out. Or I think we should see other people. Or... I don't love you anymore. Don't talk to me. If you have experienced that kind of world, you know the fear of being separated from God's love. I've been on both sides of that ball. I have removed my love from people, and I have been removed from people. I have been on both sides of that, and I think we can all understand that. In 2008, I was driving around my town in Huntington, and a song came on the radio, and it was a sweet little voice on country music, uh, 103.3 WTCR, and uh, it was a little girl named Taylor Swift, back when she sang country. That's, that's dating this story. Um, and, you know, I was, I was in high school, so I was into um, cool music, esoteric music. I wasn't anything to do with that Taylor Swift. But I heard this song, and it kind of broke me. Um, a song called 15. Does anyone know this song? <laughs> a couple of y'all do. Uh, she, she hits the nail on the head with her simplicity and earnestness. She says this. She says, back then, she's talking about when she was 15, I swore I was going to marry him someday. But I realized I had some bigger dreams of mine. And Abigail gave everything she had to a boy who changed his mind. And we both cried. Because when you're 15, when somebody tells you they love you, you're going to believe them. And I'm tearing up right now, not because Taylor Swift is some great poet. (laughs) But I think she gets something true to the human experience which is there's a time in our life when people tell us they love us and we believe them. But as time goes on and as people change and as we change, we forget that. And our cynicalness and our, and our jadedness takes that same principle and it takes it to God. God, do you still love me? And the Bible says, yes, I do. I do still love you. 
So principle number three, if you're keeping notes, here's what Paul's going to show us. God's love commits for our good, commits for us to be good, and it commits for good. God's love commits for good. Here's what Paul says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he quotes a psalm, Psalm 44, and he says, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I don't think he quotes this psalm all arbitrarily. This would be one that Paul, as a young man in rabbinical school, would be well aware of, because this is the song you sing when you feel like God has abandoned you. So Psalm 44 starts like this. It'd be like when we sing How Great Thou Art. Paul says, uh, Psalm 44, and everyone's ears perk up that know this song. We have heard it with our ears. This is the beginning of Psalm 44. Of what our ancestors have told us, what you did in their days. A long time ago, with your hand you drove out nations and you planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and our ancestors flourished. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their armies bring their victory. It was your right hand. And so Paul quotes this song that they all know that they would sing that says, back then it was good. And then he goes on, the psalmist says, I live in disgrace all day long. That was then, this is now. Our hearts have not turned back. We've tried to be righteous. If we've forgotten the name of the Lord, we're trying to be good and spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? For your sake, we face death all day long were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the psalmist, the song that Paul would have sang sitting around in a darkened synagogue when life was hard, when they were remembering the good times in the past when God loved them. He says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. And the word the psalmist uses is a Hebrew word for love, hased which is a very specific type of love. It's sometimes translated loyal love, covenant love. It's a love that says, I love you for good. I'm committing to you no matter what, even if you're not committing to me. So the psalmist says, rescue us for that. We've been waiting on you, God. And then Paul flips ahead in Romans and he says, that psalm we used to sing, Psalm 44, you remember that? We're counted sheep to be slaughtered. God answered our prayers. He does love us like that. He loves us for good with a love that never ends. For your sake we face death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these things, all of the hardship, all of the abandonment, all of the difficult things in life, we are more than conquerors. Not just like conquerors, not like we've overcome that. No, 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 no. The hard things in our life actually cause us to love God more and our lives to be better. I don't understand that, but through Jesus, that's the truth. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future. I mean, that's everything, right? Nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Nothing can do it. God loves you for good. You're in it. And he loves you according to his said, his covenant love. When Tori and I first started dating, our dating relationship was unique. Um, I'd been in several relationships, serious relationships before Tori. I'd said, I love you on multiple times. Um, I'd bought engagement rings. And, and when I finally started dating Tori, our relationship went from zero to 60 really fast. And there's some extenuating circumstances there. I'd love to tell you the story sometime. Take me to lunch. It would be my pleasure. 
Uh, I'm very hungry, I guess. Uh, but when we first started dating, we wanted to talk about what love is because we saw it was escalating quickly and we wanted to discuss that word. I'd use that word in the past with people. And so we sat down, we talked about the components of love. What is love exactly? And we determined that love has to have three components. The component number one is action. That love is, is not love as if it's just a word, right? You got to love someone by serving them and by, by showing them that you love them. Number two, uh, affection. I don't believe this whole thing of I love you, but I don't like you. You know, when I read the scripture, I see a God who has affection for us in addition to love. So uh, service, right, action, affection. And then thirdly, this was the component that, that we came to that kind of tripped me up, commitment. I don't think I can say I love Tori if I'm not committed to her. And I've been on the giving end and the receiving end of breaking those commitments before. And if you're listening here and you have too, I'm not trying to put shame on you. But for me, I knew that was dangerous. And so in that conversation, we determined, uh, I determined, I don't even know if Tori was on board. I'm not going to use that word because I know how destructive it's been for me. So I'm going to tell you, Tori, that I love you when we get engaged. And you may be hearing that and think that's kind of like youth groupy stuff, you know, kind of weird Christian. Don't say you love your boyfriend. And you can say you love your boyfriend. I I'm not trying to put that shame on you. But for me, because I had manipulated that word, I wanted to put boundaries on it. And when I said I love you, I wanted it to mean I love you forever. I love you for good. So that was hard. I remember dating her and knowing that I was going to marry her, having the ring bought and picked out and wanting to tell her I loved her, but I wanted to wait. And so the night that we got engaged, it was an incredible night. We, um, we went to, to afternoon tea. She loves tea down at the Adolphus. And then we had dinner at Rise, at the souffle restaurant. And then we went up to Denton and sat by a lake and I'd made a fire and, and we had a little picnic. And um, I said, Tori, I love you. And she knew it was coming, right? At that point, she knew it was coming. And so I pulled out the ring and, and proposed and what an incredible payoff that when we use that word with each other, it means that we love each other for good. And I'm not saying that when, when you love everyone around you, you have to love them with the commitment a husband has for a wife. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that love comes with commitment. And when God says he loves you, he loves you for good. Regardless of what your life circumstances have told you. Giving and receiving. So what do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? Well, here's what I want to tell you. Here's why I want to tell you that this page is all worn out for me. God loves us, and his love commits first for our good. He has our good in mind. He wants to give us all things. For us to be good, he wants us to know righteousness in Jesus Christ because he loves us. And finally, God's love commits for good forever. How, how can we apply this to our lives? This is one thing to read this and understand this and walk away with it and feel the love of God. But how can we apply this? Well, I want to give us two quick applications. The first is this. We're created in God's image, right? The Bible says something about that. Looking at my body, I feel like that must mean something beyond physical. <laughs> we're created in the image of God because we're supposed to act like God, which means we're supposed to love like God. So when God loves us for our good, uh, for us to be good, and for good, I believe that's how we're supposed to approach the world with our love. So how can you love those around you like this? How can you love your sons and your daughters? How can you love your husband, your wife, or your ex-wife? How can you love your grandparents, your neighbors, the kids at school that don't like you with this kind of love? Because it's going to take sacrifice, right? It's going to mean giving of yourself for their good. It's going to mean sharing Jesus Christ, and it's going to mean commitment. 
So I want to give you all just an opportunity uh, to do this at Dallas Bible Church. We talked last week about our Go and Be event on April 25th. Uh, it's an event that we do yearly. We're going to do it last year where we're going to go out into our neighborhoods and, and love our neighbors in a practical way. And um, don't check out when I say this. Don't just see this as an announcement. I think we have the opportunity as a church to show our neighbors that we love them like God for their good. You want to show someone you love them for their good, no strings attached? Carry a couch for them. Give away furniture with our community giveaway. You know, stand out there in the hot sun and help people serve them breakfast. You want to show someone that you are committed to them? We have a table set out in the lobby for a, uh, a group called Poema that we're partnering with. They're a sex trafficking or, uh, prevention and, uh, and rescue organization. And they work right here in Dallas, like on 635 and 75. They are right here. And their whole mission is to rescue boys and girls from trafficking situations and ugly places so they can show them the love of God, not because we want to manipulate them to know Jesus, although we want them to know Jesus, but because we love them for their good. You want to show the world and our neighbors that you love them? Let's start there. So go back to that table. Talk to Taylor about Poema. They, they love their neighbors, and we want to join with them. We're doing Feed My Starving Children, which nourishes kids who are in economic poverty and who cannot feed themselves with spiritually and physically. We're packing lunches for them on April 25th. Go sign up with Ricky in the front lobby. These are all just practical things we can do, but there are other things we can do in our lives too, right? Love our neighbors for their good so they can be good before God and for good. The second application I have is this, and this one's a real kind of what can we say to these things sort of application. Let's worship. This is the best passage in scripture, I think. Let's sing to God about it. God loves us. I'm going to ask the band to come on in. In a few minutes, we're going to, we're going to uh, sit and, and let the band bless us with a song. And what I want us to do while we're doing that is just open your Bible and really look at this passage and say, what can we say to these things? And reflect upon God's goodness and God's graciousness and his kindness. And then what we're going to do is we're going to stand together and we're going to sing before God. We're going to honor him because as God loved us like this, we want to love him like that too. And we want to love him with our words and our adoration and our praise. So I'm going to pray over us as the band is coming in. And then we are going to sing together. Father God, I am so thankful that you have given us new life in Jesus Christ. God, you love us for our good. Let us trust you in that. Let us never believe the lie of the enemy that you're holding back from us. Let us walk in that faithfulness, walk in that goodness, and knowing that you are for us. And that you're for our good, Lord. Our sins, they may be grievous to you. They may make you sad, but they don't change the way you see us because you see us in your Son, who's advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. Finally, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to love our neighbors for good as you have loved us for good and let us sit in that wonderful truth. We love you, God, in our incomplete and imperfect way. We love you and we want to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.